Welcome to My Property World, a light and informative look at all things property. We have designed this series for people involved in property and property finance in the UK market. However, we do take examples from all around the property world. Our aim is for us to make money from property together. Whether that be buying, selling, financing, trading or getting involved in a deal in another way. We do this by informing, entertaining and enjoying ourselves talking property, which gives you a chance to get to know us, what we're up to and to check us out until you're ready to make money together. In the meantime, My Property World is free and fun, so plug in your headphones and enjoy. We would love for you to like, share and comment, so please do on social media. And if you have questions, ideas for topics or deals you would like to explore, we're always looking for guests, so get in touch via the My Property World profile. Hello and welcome to another episode of My Property World. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Adam Lawrence. Great to have you on the show, Adam. Thanks for having me again, Will. Now, we've got a title of 300 Refurbs Later, The Musings of a Madman. Um, do you want to give us a bit of context to that, that Adam? <clears throat> sure thing. So I was giving a presentation this week about a build that I've done. And uh, when I sort of look back and chalk them up, I was like, there's around about 300 refurbs that I've done. And I was thinking about what I've really learned over that time um, because I, I talk quite a lot about what's going on in the macro environment. I think it's important to be informed and sort of see those things coming, as you know. Um, but also, I probably have talked less, but I would like to talk more because there's such a positive reaction when we do talk about it, about managing your own internal state when you go through um, these fairly difficult projects, you know, especially you know, conversions and refurb because there's always stuff that comes out the woodwork and how you how you cope with that, how you get the project done ultimately, and how you also manage yourself and manage that internal change as you as you go through and you try to learn as well. So uh, Adam's Adam's better known for uh, his economic commentary uh, as a I suppose as a financial engineer and as a property industry community leader uh, with partners in property uh, and a number of other property related ventures. So uh, well qualified to talk about this, but uh, unusually for someone who's got such great theoretical expertise, there's a huge practical background. And as I said, 300 refurbs later, uh, the, the first question I've got is why? Why do you keep putting your hand up for these things? <clears throat> Well, I think that's quite easy, really, because I like, I, I suppose I'm a bit of a, <clears throat> I'm a bit of a difficult character because obviously you could easily deride me as a heartless, senseless capitalist, blah, blah, blah. But really, um, maybe unfortunately for those who would love to do so, the primary uh, number of things that I've done, a vast majority of them have been taking derelicts or empty buildings that were uninhabitable and turning them into decent, habitable, longer-term prospects that maybe, if you think in your head, maybe imagine a building hasn't been touched for 40 or 50 years. I mean, most extreme example I can think of is a, a building that had only been lived in, in a nice nice area in the East Midlands, for one month out of the last 18 years, all right? And turning that into, uh, that's actually a social housing project that houses um, for people who require some support. So 
unfortunately, you know, that's not a centrist capitalist kind of play. The, the, the smartest thing to do with that would have been to polish it up and sell it off, I'm sure. But instead, we invested the long-term money into that project. So because of my sort of want to be able to create something from nothing, I think we're still at about 800,000 empty homes, although Michael Gove has assured us he's going to sort it out without giving any detail of how he's going to sort it out. Um, I know it's, it's a bit like unemployment. There's always going to be some stock that people aren't living in. People move around. Things happen. People die without a will. People move abroad. People, you know, there's an inevitable amount of some empty stock. We, we probably certainly do have too much, um, but there's, there's always going to be some. So that's one of the things that drives me forward is that taking unloved and useless buildings that I just don't see why we need to always think new build. And when we think new build on a lot of sites, we have to think flats, which we don't really necessarily need. There isn't necessarily a shortage of them. There isn't necessarily a shortage of, of lots of, of things that are the more profitable things to build. Whereas what you can do is take an existing building, make it into something new. I think it compartmentalizes your risk, although it concentrates it as well. So it's a, an interesting dynamic. But that's the bit that's given me the satisfaction, whereas the sort of new build, uh, the new build stuff has not necessarily given me anywhere near the same drive to continue doing it. Well, I guess. Yeah, and from a, uh, I suppose from an individual perspective, so, uh, a person living in uh, a home that they didn't have previously, there's a quality of accommodation uh, that makes them feel warm and safe, and um, it improves the quality of life. That's a great thing in itself. From a community point of view, uh, a, a derelict property is not a nice thing to be walking past every morning. Uh, there's an uplift in, in uh, value, as you said, but also uh, the environmental impact. I, I refuse to almost uh, be shown that it's possible to take a, a, a new build and say there's less environmental impact of getting all the materials to the site, the creation of that and the erection of that, that property versus tidying up an existing one um, that, that's already there and, and just needs a, a, a little bit of water tightness and a bit of finishing on the inside. I mean, you can't, you know, when you look at the environmental impact of something like concrete, you can't, you can't disagree with that argument if you're having it on a factual basis. So that's, that's absolutely it, Will. Yeah. Now, three levels. We're, we're going to talk about the um, the, the management of um, uh, the actual project itself. We're going to talk about the uh, external environment. Uh, and then how do you deal with that mentally and uh, internalise these these things? Um, and, and as I said, the, the musings of a madman, uh, how, how someone has gone through um, the... I suppose the the, the ten thousand hours or, or whatever the, the the number actually is at this stage, um, and, and still keeps putting their hand up for more. Uh, we're really interested to hear what you've got to say. Maybe let's start with the uh, external environment, which is uh, it seems to be quite volatile at the moment. Uh, and, and we've done a, a couple of quite good shows about volatility uh, and, and indeed inflation. Do, do you want to kick off with? Um, some of the headline points and we can we can delve into this. Yeah, sure thing. So I think inflation is important, but rather than the usual sort of high, very high level macroinflation we're talking about, 
I think here when we're talking about projects, we're talking about construction specific inflation. Um, so that would obviously uh, segment down into materials and labor individually, as so often happens in the world. Um, there might not necessarily be pressures on both of those things at the same time. And the reason why it's particularly challenging at the moment is there are pressures on both of those things simultaneously. Um, so if we if we thought of why are materials moving upwards and the concentration of various pricing at a really simple level, if in 2020, and this is what actually happened, you know, lumber mills turned turned their production off when the pandemic hit because they thought this is going to decimate construction, this is going to do this and that. Um, and instead, it didn't do that at all because you have people who were taking on lots of home extensions to accommodate that extra bedroom that they needed from working from home or build the garden office or, or whatever. A lot of timber required and a lot of that sort of stuff. And it's not just timber. This happened in a lot of commodities and commodities at high level these huge, huge companies that are delivering, you know, 80 or 90% of the timber requirement are making a decision like they would in a March 2020 that will affect the next 12 to 18 months. And that's, that's exactly what's happened with the timber price because they said supply will be, we won't need any supply for a year and they couldn't have been further wrong. They actually needed more supply. Demand went up, not down. Um, mm -hmm. So it's huge overreaching impacts through the supply chain. And, you know, we've talked before, Will, about one of the classic, uh, you see this with oil. Um, it's easier to see with oil because people usually have to put their hand in their pocket to pay for petrol or diesel at the pump. As the price goes up, the price goes up at the pump very quickly. As the price goes down, it's a little bit steadier. It's a little bit slower. It's sticky at these top levels. Um, and, of course, volatility itself is difficult because the suppliers need to... The, the, the distributors and the retailers need to protect themselves as well. So if you thought you could relay that to energy, for example, look, obviously energy, you can't see it and you haven't got necessarily physical storage that we can all associate it with, although obviously there is physical storage, um, but that stock has been going up and up and up in value, hence why the energy companies made all the money, hence why um, the wind for, sorry, the temporary targeted energy profits levy. So if you think about what might happen to materials, I suppose one of the natural ways of dealing with that is to think, right, I'll start stockpiling stuff. Um, I think the first thing, though, winding back from there that people can really do is they can shop around more aggressively. Once you get, and this, this happens all the time, certainly to big building companies, construction companies, your account is valuable. If you're going to Jusons instead of Travis Perkins, you probably get sick of, you know, Jusons or Travis Perkins trying to get you back um, because they know your account is turning over a million pounds a year, 10 million pounds a year, whatever, whatever it is. Um, but you do need to shop around because there will be people who had a glut of stuff in stock that you can get. You'll need to think about some slightly more guerrilla methods of procurement, maybe. You might need to compromise and get some not so, so much secondhand, but stuff that's been trashed from sites that there's nothing wrong with it. Be a bit more entrepreneurial in your sourcing and procurement because you can't just accept, oh, well, prices have gone up 40 or 60% since we costed this. Um, you, you're going to need to take some action. So there's loads and loads of things like, well, building materials in general that you can find 
And look, I'm not saying you can go on eBay and buy with impunity. You're going to have to go and make decisions and establish integrity of product and, and all the rest of it. And then VAT might be an issue as well. But it's worth looking into these things. I remember I've done projects before where we're running tight on the budget and we've had uh, maybe 200 square metres of tiles delivered when we only needed 50. And then the other 150 had sit in the back garden and we've broken them down and sold them at £10 a square metre on eBay when we bought them at £4 a square metre. Um, and effectively, we ended up with tiles for the job free. So that can always be done um, if you've got the, the energy and the, the problem-solving mindset. There are ways and means in which those things can, can be done. If you're used to, when, when the market is stable, you might be used to a relatively easy life where you phone up Magnet and you get stuff and it's all fine because your margins work. When that starts to fall apart, you've got to, you've got to react a bit differently. So that, that's the, and the supply chains are still not back to normal, steady state, trustworthy. You know, China's COVID policy is not necessarily as yet where the rest of the world might want it to be. There's also that upside risk in terms of will China be opening up and demanding a lot more and sucking in a lot more materials when they start to really move on from their lockdown culture, as I suppose we'd call it at the moment in 2022. And the, the actual availability of, of materials at a, uh, a given time, because you, you can't build something if the materials to build it aren't actually physically at the work face uh, for, for the, the tradesperson to knock the nail into the wall or whatever the, the case may be. That's a really good point, Will. And I think what we've seen over the last two years is nearly the collapse in the just-in-time philosophy of doing things. It's not the case anymore where you phone them the night before and it'll be on site the next day. You just cannot rely on that. So it takes a lot more um, effort <clears throat> in terms of design and organisation of materials. When you know... Let's assume everything's got a 16 to 24 week lead time. And the, I, I mentioned those figures deliberately because over the past 12 months, I've heard that about bricks. I've heard that about windows. I've heard that about kitchens. I've heard that about all sorts of things. So, <clears throat> you know, you can't make that call because you need it next week and then bemoan the rest of the world for doing it. It's on you to be organising that at the very, very early point. Now, what that's also going to do, bearing in mind, is it's going to mean you've got a different cash requirement nearer the start of the project. And it's also going to mean you've got different security concerns that you don't really necessarily want and need. So it does throw up some other problems to solve, but ultimately this whole game is solving problems and sometimes solving problems on the fly. And if the problems are coming from the macro environment, you can't control them. So you can either let them consume you or you can deal with them. And, and the, the recognition of how that... Um, that material, uh, I suppose, supply chain challenge uh, translates into a labour challenge at the same time because uh, if the materials aren't there, uh, someone's got to wear that on a labour basis. Um, yeah, yeah. So who, who caused the delay? Pointing <clears throat> the finger is one thing. Who pays for it is another. Yeah. Uh, and if you put too much pressure uh, on a, a contractor. Um, they're either going to, to wear that themselves or pass it on to their workforce who uh, are under inflationary pressures themselves. Uh, you, you're a, a marginal, uh, financially marginal day labourer. Uh, you're, you've got maybe a discretionary uh, income of 250 quid a month. Um, 
not too many things need to change in your uh, in your world over uh, you know over the course of your um, I suppose finances, and, and you can't physically make it to work. Yeah, I'm I'm sitting here nodding my head, Will. Absolutely. So that's your knock on labour force impact of everything we've just been talking about. But then we've also got the macro tightening of the labour market and availability of trades as well to deal with. So that's another reason to force um, labour cost inflation upwards. So, you know, dealing with that post-Brexity environment and skills gaps that we know have been there for 20 and 30 years, but we haven't addressed them. And like as the market works, as there's an easy flow of people um, coming from the EU primarily with the skills, it's meant the governments haven't had to invest that money in that education. And, you know, it's also fair to say we lost our way a bit with wanting 75% of people to go to university. You know, at some point that has to that has to change. And of course, that, that was given up on, you know, post Tony Blair era. Um, but we've missed those pragmatic, those trade led. You know, it's often talked about that construction in America, for example, taken much more seriously as a career, as an industry than it is in the UK. And that's just nuts. That's absolutely nuts. We've got the biggest requirement of all in percentage terms. And we've got this huge dearth of, of supply. Obviously, planning and things get in the way. They're not facilitators of, of building, despite what the sound bites Boris might want to, mm. to throw out there. And of course, in the defence of the planning departments, the pandemic screwed with them as well. But the local authorities ultimately need to take control. And the, the, the inherent problem is always the local authority doesn't necessarily want all the houses built. Although from a commercial and business perspective, which is not necessarily how they're run, as we all know, but of course you want the new business rates. Of course you want the new council tax. Of course you want the 106 contributions and the SIL contributions in order to make it a bigger and better area. Um, and if the developers can pay for the schools and all the rest of it, because they're building massive estates, so, so much the better. You put 5,000 houses at council tax band D somewhere, local, you know, how much does it cost to administrate that? Not an awful lot, right? So there's a nice bit of margin in there for the uh, for the local authority when you consider the shops and the, the businesses that spring up around those extra 5,000 households. Um, but that's, if I ran the LA, that's how, we, that's how we'd be doing it, but that's not necessarily the case, is it? Um, so yeah, there's, there's challenges all throughout that in terms of the specific construction macro pressures, I suppose, Will. Yeah, there's a, um, just in terms of ramping up the economy, I've got a, um, a, a little little stat uh, going internationally. So uh, Republic of Ireland in uh, 2007 had a population of 4 million. Uh, they had 400,000. Uh, Eastern Europeans uh, come into the country uh, over the preceding few years. So about 10% of the population, roughly. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, they also had one of the highest levels of house completions in the Western history. 90,000 completions, which if you adjusted that on a population basis, is about 1.3 million houses built, finished, in one year in the UK. <laughs> which is about Amazing. four times the highest level ever in history. And, but what was actually happening was they were building houses for the construction workers. 
and then the the music stopped obviously when the you know the 125% mortgages at 2% uh, turned off. Who would ever have seen that coming? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, okay, so, so let, let's get on to uh, some of the project-specific pressures. So uh, I, I think you wanted to talk about uh, specification changes and relationships with contractors. Yeah, sure thing. And I, I think it's – so there will be specific things when we get into the detail of a project that happens. So, for example – you might have party wall requirements. I've seen tons of people get into problems where they've either not really known about party wall, which I can understand to an extent, although, you know, the old ignorance of the law is no excuse, um, or they have absolutely known about party wall and they've been particularly naughty in the way that they have attempted to deal with um, party wall requirements. So uh, that's a, a one that can come up, and I think knowledge and getting the right consultants in at the right time is a, a key part of being able to solve that. Um, spec changes, as you mentioned, well, they can often be driven by a number of sources. I like to try and make sure the design is right, because if you don't get the design right, then ultimately then when you see the product, then what you've got is something you didn't want or something you didn't expect. And you've got to go over all those potential problems and issues in the design stage Otherwise, it's going to cost you five times to ten times the money to fix them while you're building. And if you have to fix them afterwards, it's going to be even more damaging. And that's sort of, you can call it X inefficiency. You can call there's a number of different names for it or terms for it. Um, that's the sort of thing you've got to eradicate from your projects. Um, but, of course, if it's already happened and it's happening to you now and you're listening to this, you've still got to deal with it. So that's not really what your contingency should be for. There shouldn't be contingency for you screwing up the design phase. But if it's your first refurb, you know, <clears throat> if we went back to my first refurb, Will, I went and did a one-week intensive plastering course at a place called Able Skills down in Dartford. Um, those who know me might say I'm reasonably built like a plasterer, really. I think former prop forwards are probably pretty decent plasterers. Um, and it was great. We stayed for a week in Dartford. We stayed above a pub um, in Greenhide. We went to the place... I was absolutely physically drained after the first day, you know, went home after that about five o'clock, went to the pub downstairs, had two pints and a bit of dinner, fell asleep in my work boots at 6.30 p.m. in my bed upstairs, woke up at 6 a.m. feeling as stiff as a board, but thought, right, OK, we're going to get through this, you know, because uh, it is it is physically pretty demanding work. And it taught me a few things. One of them was I didn't want to be a plasterer, right? Um, but it taught me a lot about the, the art form. And it is an art form. Of, of I'm not just talking about plastering on board. I'm talking about render. I'm talking about stone walls. I'm talking, we took on all sorts of stuff in that week. And it was a lot of fun. And that knowledge has stayed with me for the uh, approximately probably 11 years ago since I did that course. Um, and what I did was I set myself up on the site with a laptop, right? And as the plasterer, and the project manager for that job over plastered it to death plastered under the stairs where you'd never see it and in cupboards and all this sort of stuff that you'd never do in a, in a project these days necessarily um created plenty of extra decorating work for the decorators but what i also did was i learned a lot about the trades mentality when i did that um and also the importance of you know not pissing people off by not having stuff ready for them by not, you know, there's no excuse for, 
you know, if you need, we had it happen the other day on a job, you know, the, the, the kitchen suppliers had promised us we were first drop and the kitchen arrived at quarter past five. Now the guys stayed, but what's happened there? It still cost us a day's wages, right, for two people for that to happen. And we're not going to be able to go back to the supplier and say, right, you owe us 400 quid or whatever it is. It's not, that's not within their contract of delivery. They've just let us down. Now, how did we manage it? Well, the PM was in charge, was in communication with everybody involved in the process throughout the day. Absolute pain in the you-know-where for him, you know, him tearing his hair out, 20 phone calls, whatever, but we managed it. Um, and ultimately, that's got it done. That's a, a small example of a, a one-house project, obviously. So that was the level to which I thought, and I, and I should be really clear, I, I, I say I can't wire a plug. I, I can wire a plug, but I'm, I'm still much better off getting someone else to do it for me. It's not my practical skill set on that stuff. And even more importantly, my passion for that sort of stuff is zero or negative, realistically, right? So it's much better off to get someone else to do it. But in order to learn, in order to, you know, and I'm a good, I, I, I'm, I do learn, I certainly learn by reading and listening, but I also learn by doing. And I think every, I know there's a lot of, you know, it's popular these days to put people into boxes of, are they a kinesthetic learner or are they this or are they that? And like everything, when you try and make life binary or um, or you put it into base three or whatever, it's not as simple as all of that. We all learn from bits in different ways and it's all quite fluid in, in how we learn. So I learned a lot by actually doing that. And I'd highly recommend that if anybody's going to get, you know, I knew from day one I wanted to scale up and I wanted to get serious, that that's a pretty good, pretty good level of experience. And it's kind of, in a little way, it's it's one of those things that shows my dedication to being good at the craft really because outside of my comfort zone a lot of people would have seen that as a waste of time or say well you're never going to be plastering walls I knew I wasn't going to be right but could I do it what knowledge did it give me what contacts did it give me etc 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 right so I'd love to hear the decorators comments from that project but uh <laughs> so Relationships with contractors. Um, That's a, a, a volatile thing um, at the best of times, really. I mean, you know, the main contractor model, especially as the projects get bigger and bigger, is a wafer thin margins, money made on variations, which is, you know, directly opposed to your interest as the developer. In theory, they should be using your money because their credit terms are good in order to pay the wages and not take a lot of risk. And that's why they can afford to operate in a relatively low margin environment because they need low amounts of working capital. And that's a real problem when you come to, I would, I would pitch this as a, the biggest problem in jobs between 100,000 and £300,000 worth of work, right? You're at a stage where you definitely want to be using a contract, probably a JCT, maybe a JCT minor works, maybe maybe a, a bit beefier than that. You're at the stage where you're going to be, if you get a medium-sized contracting, you know, building firm in to quote on that, they're going to be, you're not going to be able to have the margin in the job to be able to pay for them necessarily. So you're looking at the smaller end of registered contracting firms and they you know part of your relationship with them will be down to how good they are at managing their cash flow 
right? Because what the, what a lot of these built and this this applies to jobs below 100k as well, very very much so, right? They will lean on the weakest link to get money when they need money. It won't be about how much they've done of your job. It'll be about how much they've done somewhere else, or even worse, someone else is slow paying them, or someone else has knocked them on a job and owes them 20, 30, 40 grand, and they haven't got the cash flow to be able to plug that gap. So their money management, unfortunately, you are highly exposed to how good their money management is. How do you deal with that? Well, do you know what? You need to understand a little bit of upfront. Uh, so you need to ask some pretty, pretty invasive questions about how all that's going to work. You know, even at a 20 grand refurb stage, or even at a 10 grand refurb stage, we will have milestones of when we're going to pay and what we're going to do. We haven't got a QS involved. We haven't got a hugely, we've got a schedule of works, but it's a schedule of works that'll be four pages long, let's say, not 44 pages long. Mm -hmm. It won't necessarily go down to, we will use these handles on the magnet kitchen that will cost £1.99 or, or whatever that might mm -hmm. be. Um, it's pragmatic because the people's time spent putting those things together will cost you more than it will save you in it's, it's the stripped back version of the organization. As the jobs go back into that 100 to 300K range, you're going to spend some time, effort and money in making sure everything's nailed down. And you've got to then try and you've got to keep to those milestones and you've got to be strong. And if people are pressuring you for money and you haven't got to those milestones, you've got to turn around to them and say, why are you asking me for this when this is the agreement? You haven't done what you said you were going to do. Why are you pushing me for money? Go and push for the money somewhere else where you've done the work, right? What's what's wrong with the cash flow? And when you when you frame it like that, it's quite a difficult conversation. But they, you know, ninety nine percent of the time you've hit the nail on the head, and they go, "Ah, oh, sugar, this they're switched on. I'll go and try one of the other three, five, seven, nine jobs that I'm running at the moment and knock on their door." Or even better. They'll get to the stage they should have got to on your project by landing on on a Saturday and Sunday, and they'll get the money on Sunday night if that's what they do. But they're going to have to get that done. Um, so that signs of, you know, a try and do everything that we do on a relational basis. And we've got some, it takes a certain level of, I don't know what I would call it really, savvy probably, to find a contractor who understands that if they work with you and they work with you for 10 years, then you are a really, really good source of, you've got your ducks in a row. You're going to do a hundred jobs. I've, I've stood in front of, you know, dozens of contractors over the years and said exactly the same story. We're fair. We pay on time. We're doing a lot of jobs all over the place. You know, this can be one, this can be three, this can be 10. I've had contractors who I've worked with for seven or eight years, which is, a relative rarity, unfortunately, in in the industry, because you normally get that old first job over deliver and underprice themselves. Second job, fair, reasonable, get it done really well. Third job, they think you've taken your eye off the ball, and they try and rip back what they didn't make in the first job. Then and then there's no fourth job, and that's that's a reasonably um, established pattern that we've seen over the years. As much as you can have very direct conversations with people. Um, but on the same front, if you're a really, really difficult client, people aren't going to even want to get to that first job. I've known people who have pushed things so hard with contractors, especially in the market that we're like at the moment, 
But the contractor just turns around and says, look, I've got time for this. Don't you? You're expecting me to do a project manager's job, but you don't want to pay me for project managing. You want me to manage your trades that you're going to bring in, but you're not going to make sure this happens. I'm Well, where's my remuneration for that? And then when something goes wrong with one of them, who's going to get it in the neck? And you can understand that. And that's why it's, that's why it's uh, and the, and the, sh- the, the shipping of specific tasks like design management, the, uh, the, the, the specification changes back and forth. Uh, that's not the main contractor's role. <clears throat> this is it. And, and sometimes through naivety. <clears throat> and I, I always say, Will, the thing is, you know, read the house builders Bible or go to courses on project management of refurbishment and new build development, right? And I don't mean uh, XYZ property that are going to charge you 9997 plus VAT because Kevin's done two refurbs and now he's a guru or whatever. I mean real courses at real places. Um, and what you'll learn is, and what you should take away from that is, cool, there's a lot of moving parts. And if there isn't, for example, we talked about a 10 grand refurb, if there isn't a budget for a QS, and there probably isn't on a 10 grand refurb, right, then guess what? You're the QS, right? Or you need to get someone who is doing the QS's role. Now, if you're super lucky, you might find a builder who, is, who doesn't even realise how good their skill set is. That isn't really a builder. He's actually a project manager and the QS um, and can liaise with building regs if needed and do all of these wonderful things. But that's a little bit like looking for a unicorn sometimes, especially in a market. And those people, generally speaking, have got work for the next 18 months, three years, whatever, at the moment in the market that we're in. So you need to understand what those roles are. You need to strip them back and you need to work out how you're going to address them. You know, okay, on a 10 grander, we're not going to have a contract per se. I mean, we do have a loose form contract that we use, but it's not JCT, you know. Um, But the important thing is to get people to commit in writing to what they're going to do, when they're going to do it, and therefore how they're going to get paid and how that's all going to get measured. And that's what we will do. So what we've done there is we've done, we, you know, we've done the prelims, we've done the contract, we've done the, we've done the QSing, and the schedule of works is appended to that. And as I say, the schedule of works is three, four pages long. And that's what, that's the, to my mind, that's the right level of, pragmatic commercially viable now look if it's a project if, if it's a one house project or a one flat project but that flats in kensington or mayfair or whatever you know, different kettle of fish you're gonna i've seen people spend three hundred thousand pounds on those sorts of projects so you've got the budget because you've got it in the gdb I, I, and all the rest of it I, i've seen someone spend uh more than three hundred thousand on the kitchen <laughs> well there you go there you go um, okay, so let's just bring this into the, the inner game, the mental stuff, the internalization. Uh, how do you deal with all the, I've got to say, all the crap going on uh, that happens in a project? Like, and, and some people get addicted uh, to, to this, as you clearly have. Uh, the, you know, the, the challenges and the madness that, that goes on with all the changes and and you've got all this um, volatility out there in the wider external environment. What what, what happens uh, on the inside, in your head, in your uh, your own day? Well, on a personal level, something that I realised when I when I went and because I'd done, and I think if you go and do like a, a, an MBA or a similar course, 
I'm a big fan of the way we do it in the UK rather than in the US. But in the US, you can quite often see people go and do an MBA when they've done one or two years or even less than that in work, in industry. So they might be in their early 20s. Um, I was 32, I think I was, or 33 when I embarked on mine. And those sort of 10 plus years out there in various, doing various different things in different sectors, entrepreneurial mostly, they were incredibly valuable. And what it also gave me was the ability to learn frameworks and theory and things and fit them back to things that I'd already done. So that would be a great example would be, you know, I think a few people who've heard me speak at length before will know I've talked about um, some of my pastors trading bets, sports arbitrage, running a betting syndicate. Um, what that meant was an incredible amount of change and the management of that change was something that was kind of forced on me and I learned to deal with over the course of a couple of years. And then I realized when I had a few other people working with me in the syndicate, that part of my role was to help them with the management of change and volatility. So that has personally served me really, really well. You know, we've got someone who comes along to Pitt London who's a derivatives trader. Um, that's an incredible skill set to apply to construction and property management and project management in general, I think, because you just have to do, you have to almost be out of body and be able to watch things happen and think, rather than think, ah, oh my God, what's going on? The world's terrible. You have to think, right, problem, solution, problem, solution, problem, solution. So I think you can, you know, it depends how you want to go about addressing that problem, get some relevant experience, read and listen to some books about it, management of change and internal management of change rather than organizational change per se is very, very relevant in that field. So but I think you start from the old, you know, think about your projects, think about the design phases we talked about earlier. You know, I would, I would honestly say organization is the number one skill that stands out in a really, really good contractor or project deliverer, right? I've worked with some individual trades over the years and they're just exemplary. They won't come into, if the site is messy, right, their bit won't be messy. They will not let that happen. Um, they do what they say they're going to do. They turn up on time. They stay later if that's what needs to happen. Um, obviously, it's not that easy to get those people. But what I'm saying is borrow their mentality. A messy site is a messy mind. And most people, if they arrive on a messy site, will think, right, that's the standard to which you work. So I'm just going to put my crap anyway. I'm not going to put it in the skip. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. It, it, the water falls down and... I think it's one of those reasons why like Jordan Peterson tells people to make their bed before they go out protesting about things in the world or whatever. That it's a, it's an important metaphor because it's that internal level of organization that makes you be able to see things with clarity and to be able to focus on the big and important stuff and not sweat the small stuff. So organization systems, data quality, really, really important. Um, and then probably would move on to, financial pressures that are going to come up throughout a project as we said if you use any of your contingency because you screwed up or somebody screwed up on the design of something or your gantt chart was in the wrong order you, you did so you did x before y you you put the plugs in before the plasters were finished or what, whatever the uh, whatever the analogy might be um then financially related pressures again you've got to put them into you've got to put them into a box 
And it's about good organisation, knowing that you can ideally have a good relationship with your lender, um, have a good relationship with private funders, have some cash in reserve. If you're trying to do something and you've got, right, I need 100 grand for this project and you raise 100 grand, right, and 50 of it you get and 50 of it is pledges from other people, you are setting yourself up to fail, right? It's too slim. You need contingency margin. You need more than pledges. You need physical cash to be available on the hip. Um, and you need to know what plan A, B, C, D, E and F are in those situations. So again, in a way, it's coming down to organisation. And I'm not saying you just sort of accept it when someone says, look, this is going to be another 1,500 quid, 15 grand, 150 grand, whatever the size of the project. Um, you, you've got to try and solve those problems as they come up. But there's got to be an acceptance that very, very rarely are people delivering under timescale and under budget, even though you think you've allowed for all of these contingencies. And if someone's done that 50 times in a row, then they're, unless they've got an incredible mindset, then there's a risk that on number 51, they might start getting a bit complacent and not seeing a few things coming. And that's dangerous because 51 might be the biggest project they've ever done and, and sinks the, what they've done in projects one to 50. So you need to be you need to be cautious. You know, if you're developing out the ground, groundworks themselves can cause a massive issue. And you can do you know, ground investigation can lead you some of that way, but you don't know what the ground's necessarily like. Um, you don't know if you're gonna suddenly need to pile something that you didn't need to, you know, especially on a smaller job where you think, well, why has that happened? It hasn't needed to happen next door or the other side, but it just is one of those things. Um you need to be cautious. And then I think probably to round it all off, Will, I would say it's also that piece of quite often you might feel like you're on your own when you're trying to deal with all this pressure in your head. So having the right people around you, having a, a community that you're part of, people who can, you know, it might be that your wife or husband or a partner doesn't want to hear about the stresses and pressures at 23 Acacia Avenue this evening. But actually, there might be a group of like-minded people who are more than happy to talk about all that stuff and are dealing with the same themselves. And when the first person reaches out the olive branch and says, I'm struggling a bit on a project at the moment, in the right sort of surrounding environment and community, you'll find tons of people who will reach out and say, oh, that's happened to me. Or, oh, I'm dealing with the same at the moment. Or, you know, it really opens the floodgates with, uh, with honesty. So it doesn't have to be pouring your heart out on Facebook to... 5,000 interested people or semi-interested people. It might just be a small a small group. Small uh, and uh, in the past, you've talked about that sense of uh, it all being on you. And and uh, if, if that's how you approach it, it is all on you. Exactly, exactly. And obviously, you know, JVs and things can help out with that if you're working with the right people. Um, and, you know, spotting things early and not putting them in the box, not putting your head in the sand, is the number one skill, I think, in, in, in this game. And then looking at things in context, understanding that, you know, at, at the very, very top level, I'll never forget the conversation I had with uh, with Ross Harper the day after the church was, was on fire. Um, and he was calm. What had he done? He had spoken internally, been up all night, but he'd spoken to himself and, and coached himself and was like, well, look, no one's died, right? So we started from, is this an unmitigated disaster that's going to end my life? Or any, has it ended anybody's life? No, no one's died. 
So step back from there and contextualize it and think, and, and that was very inspirational for me because I, I think about that conversation semi-regularly and I think, look, he dealt with that there, right? I know, I know Ross really well. He's a good friend of mine. He is a normal human being. He does things that most normal human beings can't, right? But he's a normal guy. He's a nice guy. And if he can contextualize it and compartmentalize it in that way, then, as I say, I like to get to problem, solution. Then we'll go back and work out, right, it's not necessarily about finding fault so we can point the blame at someone, right? But how do we change the process? Why do we set ourselves up to fail here? Ask yourself the toughest questions first of all, and then go around. Whereas what I see in reality all the time is people saying, oh, this has happened to me. That's happened to me. And it's like, okay, but are you willing to have that difficult conversation with someone else or yourself that says, what could I have done better? Let's start with me because I can control me. I can't control you. I can control me. So what could I have done better? And sometimes the answer is, I'm not going to be working with that person again. That has to be on the table, right? But sometimes it might be, do you know what? I could have been clearer with that. And next time there'll be a clearer, we'll, we'll change the template. We'll do this. We'll do that. Um, <clears throat> even if that means probably putting more blame on yourself than you maybe should do, it's, a, it's the only place to start because you can't otherwise do this on an ongoing basis if you're not willing to be very honest with yourself. And in, in, in like anything, I suppose, how do you expect to improve if you go into a conversation thinking, I'm perfect, I've done all this right? It's not the case, is it? We make mistakes all the time. If you're going to run, I was, I was saying to someone yesterday, we, when we, in the 300 refurbs, at one point we were in 2019, we were running 43 at a time, right? We don't have a massive team, right, by any stretch of the imagination. So it was really, really difficult. But what we saw was um, it, because of the time of year we'd acquired quite a lot, et cetera, et cetera, it was going to ebb and flow away. And people just needed to support other people on the team as much as they could in order to get through that hump. And it's good to – it's if you're, if you're saying, look, two, three, six months, we're going to be working um, balls to the wall or, or female equivalent thereof, then – that can be quite motivating if it's done in the right way. If you turn up to work and you've got to do that every day, it's a problem and you're going to burn people out, you know. So uh, I might get you to round off with a, a little bit more, uh, a couple more points on the data quality point. But, but before we do, just a quick, quick story. Um, so a number of years ago, working uh, working with an organisation that had a roughly £100 million annual turnover, over a 1,000 employees, construction organisation, uh, literally hundreds of, of small projects going. Um, and the, the guy that hired the site managers and the project managers, uh, I asked them, what, what, what's the main thing that you're uh, in your hiring process that you look for? And he said, in the interview, I asked the site manager one question. Show me your day book, which is basically the work diary for the site. Um, and if he doesn't have it with him, I say, can you go back to the car and get it? And if it's not in the car, he ain't getting the job. And um, but but it, it's a uh, it's a he described it as a, uh, a as a look into their soul, into their day, into their their level of of actual organisation. He said people talk. Uh, really good games, 
but you, you get to see uh, in that work diary, in that, that day bot, what's going on, their level of, of detail, what the flow is, are they in control of things? And if it's down on paper, if it's in the spreadsheet, um, it's a lot easier to uh, deal with that pressure. And I, I think that applies it in, um, in most roles within property. Um, if you're able to, to, to get that on paper, if you can get it down, it gets a little bit clearer now. Whether you're doing that on a weekly basis, a daily basis, or an hourly basis, um, I, I'd encourage people uh, that that's a really, really you know simple way um, of getting control of something that seems out of control. You know, Will, that is a really fabulous anecdote, and it makes me think about all the times years and years ago when I was trying to do it all on my own, and I would walk around with prospective new contractors and what they would do in terms of writing things down, et cetera, et cetera. What would you get back from them? I've had back everything from, here's a one-line quote saying, refurb works at 23 Acacia Avenue, 20 grand. <laughs> That's a quote, some people's idea of a quote. In fact, I haven't even had it emailed to me. I've had it texted to me or verbally given to me or whatever at one end of the spectrum. On another end, I've had people price up seven or eight grand jobs Two-page quote, itemized, bang, 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 bang. Like I said, not necessarily down to BS9832 approved, stainless steel kitchen handle, part number 9174476. Um, but definitely good enough. And it gives you so much confidence in the person taking that job on at the very sort of entry-level refurbs of people who might be listening to this and looking at taking on. Um, and I think some of the other side of that can be the problem is if you've only got a certain budget and you've been, and I see this all the time, people's first job that they're trying to do, if that budget is not sufficient, then you end up with the guy who sends you the 20 grand for 23 Acacia Avenue and you are more than 50% likely to have a big problem at some stage or at least be exposed to a lot of risks that you don't necessarily see are there. Um, and that's that's again, and it's not necessarily always the most expensive or the most organised. But of course, you know the, the system we work within is is bound to strip those people and give them more work and give the the bad people less work one way or another. Yeah, and um, if you're if you're listening, have a look back through the back episodes. There's a fantastic one with Paul Tinker uh, on specification and and projects. Um, and and if you uh, listen to that, you'll be encouraged to go into the detail a little bit more, uh, as as uh, you've done in uh, a number of occasions talking about design and uh, uh, the, the the true cost of not uh, fully specking things out. Absolutely. So quality. Uh, so I think what you what do you need to know? What do you need to capture? Um, where can you? Uh, how do your communication streams work? I've seen people try to um, use CCTV on site. Uh, I think your connection's going, Will. Sorry. Okay, so you've got to CCTV and then, yeah, King. Okay, so when it comes to data quality, um, 
I'm talking about ultimately um, where are your, uh, what we were just talking about in terms of the organization from the people who are delivering the project. Um, do you know where everything's coming from? If you just say plasterboard, let's say, for example, then ultimately that's going to stress a lot of people out because what do we need to be using? Does it need to be fireboard? Does it need to be acoustic? Does it need to be moisture resistant? Does it need to be eight by four sheets? What if it's six? What if I can get six by three sheets of plasterboard particularly cheaply? How will that work with the joists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Um, so the right level of data without knocking people over um, is the way forward. Also, um, what's been done and what hasn't been done? How often are you going to get an update on the project? Um, and this is where your milestones and things come into it that are really important because rather than just saying like, all right, well, we've had the plasterers in today, mate. It's more like, okay, at the best level, and some of the people I've seen run the best refurbs, there's pictures every day. There's certainly pictures every week and a progress update. We're working with someone at the moment who is doing one of the best jobs of communication that I've seen for a long, long time. And he's making it easy for himself because he's doing what he said he was going to do. And that's what, what it's boiling down to. And he's been incredibly fair when he's finding um, bits and bobs that have changed in, in the process or um, extras, add-ons, things like that, communicating them really well, justifying them, showing pictures, rather than I've had at the other end, I've had people say, like, oh, we have to do this and this while we're up on the roof, and it's an extra 1,400 quid. And we're like, we can't work like that. You can't do that. You can't have not even phoned someone when that's come up. That's not okay. Right, so it's not an extra 1,400 quid, but, well, you know, we're going to be reasonable about it, but this is this is bang out of order, you know. Um so then also how that feeds into what system and process do you use? You know, what are you having to, what reporting channels have you got set up? Have you got a builder who's happy to have a WhatsApp group with you so you can have some back and forth around all of that sort of stuff? If, if people don't communicate, you can't, you inevitably, if you're remote from the job, you're running 10, 40 jobs at once, whatever, you can't just assume things are getting done, obviously. So you need evidence, you need warm bodies to communicate with you and you've also got to set up those reporting lines and make sure that they can be that they can be done and you need rather than contingency sometimes people prefer to try and address it at the end of the project but the best people will address it as it comes up as you go along you'll approve it or not approve it and you'll you'll work out how to solve those problems from there and then you'll know how much of your contingency budget you're using and I'm talking again really here about small refurbs where we might not be talking about lots of money, um, but I, I worked with a firm years ago who sourced me some properties who they just used the contingency every time and usually a bit more. Now, I think they were probably just inherently dishonest, if I'm honest. Um, but either that or it means they're very, very poor at budgeting. Um, and it's not that we haven't run massively over on some jobs beforehand when we've discovered problems. We had a natural spring underneath the property um, at one point. We had, we've had situations where we've got into the cavities in walls and realised there weren't ties in there um, and the building's, you know, structurally unsound. Um, all of that, all of that sort of thing is just stuff you've got to be able to take on the chin. And it, that is the sort of stuff that does come out of contingency, generally speaking. Um, but the communication is very much linked to the data quality. It's very much linked to how good... How good is the system you've set up for 
communicating on the job, ultimately. Okay, well, we, we might round things off there, but um, I, I just want to share um, partners and property. Um, I, I, I'll confess that I, I'm a member to go along to the monthly London meetings. Great bunch of people. There's always good speakers. You were one of the speakers yesterday. Now, uh, the confession I have is that I've never been into the uh, repository of all the uh, videos of all the presentations, but uh, it's under 50 quid for your first month. Uh, it would be worth signing up if you've got a project on to watch Adam Lawrence's presentation um, on, uh, on his own self-build echo project. Uh, but specifically... Uh, the point around the uh, investment and design at the beginning and, and the, the true cost of not doing that fully and properly um, and, and how that applied uh, through the wider project. Now, um, that, that's quite a big statement, but um, give it a try. Uh, partners in Property, uh, was it partners-property.com? Is that the um, or co.uk or is it dot .com? Dot .com, yeah. Yeah, partners-property.com. Okay, check it out. Adam Lawrence, once again, um, we appreciate your your time. Uh, connect with him on LinkedIn, Adam G. Lawrence. Um, I'm Will Mallard. This is My Property World Podcast. Thank you. Cheers, mate. Welcome to My Property World, a light and informative look at all things property. We have designed this series for people involved in property and property finance in the UK market. However, we do take examples from all around the property world. Our aim is for us to make money from property together. Whether that be buying, selling, financing, trading or getting involved in a deal in another way. We do this by informing, entertaining and enjoying ourselves talking property, which gives you a chance to get to know us, what we're up to and to check us out until you're ready to make money together. In the meantime, My Property World is free and fun, so plug in your headphones and enjoy. We would love for you to like, share and comment, so please do on social media. And if you have questions, ideas for topics or deals you would like to explore, we're always looking for guests, so get in touch via the My Property World profile.